This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, July 8, 2018, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. God's word, Acts 5, 12 to 42. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the man outside, men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, 
you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This is God's word to his people. Well, good morning. We are continuing through the book of Acts, and I'm excited to get back at it this morning. If you pray with me, I'll ask that God just moves me out of the way and says what he needs to say. Heavenly Father, we praise you, for you are worthy to be praised. You are great and good, generous and gracious. Your love is completely different than any love we might experience in this world. It is radical and it is fearsome. You are worthy to be loved. You are worthy to be feared. I confess, Lord, that we do not fear you enough. And we take our relationship with you for granted. I pray, Father, this morning that you will stir in us a desire to honor you, to know you, and to proclaim you at every opportunity we have. Holy Spirit, move me out of the way and speak the words that you need to speak, the words of conviction or the words of comfort, the words of instruction, the words of encouragement. Speak the words of salvation and change hearts this morning. But Lord, do the work that only you can do for your glory and for our joy. We pray also this morning for our church. We thank you for the church that you have gathered here. We thank you for how you are working and who you are working through. And we especially pray this morning for our sister Susan. Lord, we, we ask that you will heal her boldly, plainly, that you will heal her of the cancer she experiences. But in the midst of her trial, Lord, I ask that you will help her and empower her as you already seem to have to preach a bold sermon about faith in you. I pray that this trial in her life will bear much fruit for your kingdom as she, by the strength of your spirit, endures, remains steadfast, and proclaims the goodness of your name in the midst of suffering. Help us all to learn from that, Father, and to rejoice and to weep with her. It is in the name of Jesus this morning that we pray. Amen. So we are in Acts chapter 5. We've been spending the last couple months, and we will end uh, kind of our first section of Acts at the end of the summer. Uh, if you didn't know, Acts is written by a Gentile doctor, which just means a non-Jewish doctor named Luke. And it's actually the sequel of part one, which is called the Gospel of Luke. And Luke endeavored to do a great investigation, a very uh, good history, if you will, as he was not an eyewitness of the things himself. He sought out eyewitnesses. And in his first part, the Gospel of Luke, if you read the beginning of it, you'll see that he said, he was endeavoring to write down and record and find out everything that Jesus had begun to do and to teach. And 
His Gospel begins with the miraculous birth. It follows Jesus' brief ministry. And then it climaxes with His death and His resurrection. And then part two, uh, which is the Acts of the Apostles, historically. Uh, if you read the beginning of it, it says that He is recording or reporting everything that Jesus continued to do and to teach, specifically through the Spirit of God working through His disciples. It begins with His ascension, Jesus' ascension to heaven, and follows the apostles' efforts to fulfill this great commission they've been given to make disciples of all nations and to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they begin doing that in Jerusalem, and the book traverses or, or follows their journey all the way through and beyond Rome. And these first five chapters give us kind of a, a record of firsts for the early church. You have the first filling of the Holy Spirit. You have the first sermon that was preached by Peter. You have the first converts. You have the first baptisms. You have the first gatherings. Uh, you have the first communions. You have the first signs and wonders through the hands of the apostles and even to the extent where it seems like Peter's shadow has some kind of impact uh, or miraculous power. You have the first persecutions, where they are arrested for the first time for teaching in the name of Jesus. And as the church gathers together, they have the first really sacrificial giving to one another for the glory of God to spread His kingdom. And then last week, as Mark preached, you saw we had the first sin that had to be dealt with in the church. And in that experience, that narrative, the beginning of Acts 5 is, is very powerful. It reveals that God is serious about sin. God confronts the sin. God Himself confronts the sin. And He ultimately kills this married couple that had lied to God. And the impact of that moment, the impact, you can imagine them all seeing that, and experiencing that, the impact is very powerful. And the last verse of last week's sermon, Acts chapter 5, verse 11, it says, Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Great fear. We'll talk about fear today. Because more than anything, I believe that the people of God are supposed to be characterized by the fear of God. This is actually what Jesus taught Himself in the Gospel of Luke. He didn't just teach love your neighbor. He didn't just teach serve. He had some hard words to speak at times. And in chapter 12, verse 4, speaking to His disciples, He said, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I'll warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus himself says, fear God, friends. Fear God. Now the fear of God is an incredibly important thing, but I would argue it's actually somewhat of a confusing thing or misunderstood thing in the church today. 
The Old Testament has a lot to say about the fear of God, particularly in the book of Proverbs. If you were to go through and just search for how many times the fear of God comes up, you would learn some interesting things. You learn that the fear of God is the beginning of both knowledge and wisdom. That the fear of God actually prolongs life. You learn that the fear of God is more valuable than great treasure. And you learn that he who fears the Lord is going to hate evil, is going to walk in God's ways, and will be greatly blessed for doing so. All of that about the fear of God, and certainly much more. It follows that it's probably something important that we should understand. So what is a fear of the Lord? What does it mean to fear the Lord? Does it mean we're supposed to be scared of God like the boogeyman? Does it mean that we're supposed to just respect God or revere God or adore God? Or is it a little bit of both? The reformer, uh, Martin Luther, he struggled with this greatly. He struggled with this kind of paradoxical identity of God as holy judge and as loving father. How do those work together? And he believed that the fear of God had to be different for the believer than it was for the unbeliever because of the cross. So he distinguished between a couple kinds of fear. He says there's this thing called kind of slave fear and something called family fear. And the slave fear that he talked about is the kind of fear that a prisoner might have for their jailer or their judge. It's this deep dread of a person. Dread of the one who stands ready to judge and punish for their guilt. It's a fear of a slave living under threat of torment from their taskmaster. A slave kind of fear. And he contrasted that with what he described as a family fear, which denoted a change in relationship. Luther described it as being like a child who has tremendous love and respect for his father and desires to please him. There's no fear of punishment or being kicked out of the family, but a fear of displeasing the one he loves and who knows that he loves him. Now, these are helpful but they certainly are not a full treatment of the fear of God in the Old Testament. It's much more complex, I would say, much more comprehensive than just these two categories. And even if we go, oh, it's, it's got to be a deep adoration because that's easier or feels better. Even if we have a deep adoration for God as Father, we must still maintain an element of respect for the Father as God. It's both. Now, if you read the book of Romans, particularly chapters 1 through 3, you'll notice that in addition to exchanging the truth of God for a lie, in addition to worshiping creation rather than the Creator, in addition to seeking our own desires and our own passions, 
The book of Romans tells us the biggest problem that men have is that they do not fear God at all. And while this certainly describes unbelievers in their rebellion against God, I would argue it may also describe believers in their attitude toward God. That they take God for granted. That in many ways, the cross or the love of God seems to extinguish His holiness. I would argue that it's possible that believers do not fear God enough. We see in Acts 5 here, great fear comes upon the church. And then you see how the apostles respond to that. They're in the church. They're leading the church. It is fair to say that they are motivated, if you will, by the fear of God. And we should take note as to how they respond to that. First and foremost, we see that they fear God enough to obey Him. That seems really simple. But I would argue for any of us who struggle with obedience in any area, struggle with fearing God. When we fear God, we obey Him. Now, the reality is these guys have been told by the powers of be, do not do what you've been doing, which is teach. Do not be witnesses. But they were told by Jesus directly, be witnesses. And so they fear God enough to actually obey that command to be witnesses. It's important to understand that God's mission for His apostles and all His people didn't conclude with what we read in Acts 2.42 or in Acts 4.32. What do I mean by that? Well, if you read Acts 2.32, you have thousands of people come to faith and they gather as the church. And in Acts 4.32, you have thousands of more people coming to faith and they're gathering as the church. A community is being built. In fact, it says in 4.32 that the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They had everything in common. Right? This amazing community is being built. This amazing assembly of people. This church. And it's a beautiful description of this community that loves each other and is unified around care for one another. And that's not just for the early church that is certainly something that today's church should endeavor to exemplify. But that's not where God's mission terminated. That's not where God's mission concluded. In other words, we must not mistake the community that God builds for the mission itself. It is essential to the mission, but it is not the mission. As one fellow pastor recently said, without the mission, the church is not a church. It's just a bunch of disobedient Christians hanging out. Think about that. It would be easy for these guys to go, hey, we built something. Let's just love each other. They had been given a command. 
It wasn't just to gather. It wasn't just to love one another. It was to go. It was to make disciples. It was to be witnesses. And so the fear of God emboldens these 12 guys to go, all right, let's obey. Let's do this. And they preach Jesus powerfully and publicly without fear of retribution, though they've already experienced it. They know it's coming. And as you read Acts 5, even though this great fear has come upon the church, you realize that not everyone is as bold as this. It might be fair to say that only these 12 guys are. Because the Bible says that none of the rest of the disciples dared join them. They admired them. They're like, wow, that's great for you guys. Good job. Way to go. They're like, well, why weren't they joining them? Why did they, they dare not join them? Well, I think it's probably fair to assume they know that the apostles have already been arrested one time. And they know that the apostles at that arrest we're told not to do what they're doing. These were the guys, the ones who told them not to do it, who killed Jesus. So as much as the fear has come upon them, what God can do, most of the church at this point is still fearful of men. And the truth is, this is us. And by us, I mean most of us. Most of us are not that bold. Most of us are not willing to, to go into what might be considered the public square and proclaim Jesus boldly. Most of us do not witness this way because most of us fear men more than we fear God. And I include myself in that. We, we fear persecution, though I think that word like all... The persecution that's happening in other parts of the globe is likely not going to happen here, at least not tomorrow, maybe someday. But we certainly fear rejection. We, we fear being different. We fear being confused. We fear being flummoxed by questions that we cannot answer. We largely fear for ourselves because we are largely always thinking about ourselves. These guys are not. These 12 apostles gather in what is called Solomon's portico or Solomon's porch. And they're performing miracles and they're teaching about Jesus. Now, these porticos are kind of the outer part of the temple and they had porches on all four sides. And Solomon's was the southern porch, which they believe part of it was actually a part of the original temple of Solomon, which Historically now, they kind of say probably wasn't, but they kind of assumed that that's what it was, and so it was called Solomon's Porch. And this was a, a very long kind of public lecture place where people gathered to talk about religious things, to have religious discussions about truth, about the Bible. And so the apostles go intentionally to where people want to talk about God. And I've find it very interesting to ask, like, where are those places today, right? 
And maybe those places aren't really physical locations. Maybe it's all online places today. But what I find as you survey the kinds of things that we talk about most of the time, one of the main drivers behind any conversations we have with people online are actually the things we're afraid of, the things that freak us out. And strangely, out of all the things that we talk about all the time, that kind of symbolize the things that we're afraid enough to talk about, like, I'm so afraid i got to talk about what's going on, it's as if we don't fear God enough to talk about Him. Think about this. For their part, the apostles are not entering into these public squares, engaging in political discussions, or having ethical debates about the rights of gladiators or Roman immigration policies. Certainly those things at times are worthy to discuss. But when we talk about what takes up most of our words, is it Jesus? These guys are having spiritual discussions about Jesus, about Jesus' crucifixion, about Jesus' resurrection. In fact, what's interesting is that Jesus actually was in the same location one other time. It's in John chapter 10. He's in Solomon's portico. And that's one of the few times where he explicitly says, I'm God. It's one of the couple times where the Jews understand exactly what he's saying. They pick up stones to stone him. So they're talking about Jesus in the place where Jesus basically declared himself to be God. It's suffice to say that that's the kind of conversation these guys are having. There are lots of people who will talk about Jesus as a good teacher, a good servant, a heroic example of some sort. Try and have a conversation about Jesus being the Son of God, God incarnate, creator of the universe. See how far that goes. These guys fear God enough to witness to a very bold truth. And they fear God enough to go beyond sentiment. Oh, it would be nice if I could have a conversation. These guys act. And they act, I think, for two reasons. One, they fear God themselves, and they also love people. What do I mean by that? Well, I think that these guys are obeying God because they want to please Him, not to avoid punishment if they don't preach Jesus but they do fear God's punishment for others. They do fear because they know God is someone to be feared. Right? Hebrews 10.31 tells us it is a frightening thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God is judge of the dead and the living and they see a bunch of souls walking out, and the fear of God in them creates compassion for others. They have compassion for the world. And God blesses their compassion. Right? They says in verse 14 that more than ever, believers were being added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, 
as these 12 guys were bold enough to go out and say, yep, Jesus is King, Jesus is Lord, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, repent and believe, people are believing. And they're arrested. Probably expected that. And then miraculously during the night, this angel lets them out. Just, right? These 12 guys, they're all in prison. Door opens up. Who knows what the guards are doing? They're like frozen or something. Who can only imagine? And the angel says something. He says, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. The words, the life. The angel, I believe, is referring to the life that comes through faith in the author of life. It's the news of salvation. right? It's the message of repentance from sin. It is the news of forgiveness for your record of sin. It is the news of freedom from the power of sin. It is the promise to help in this life, to hope after death, to have joy in eternity with Jesus. The apostles fear God enough to witness knowing that they have the words of salvation for souls who need it. How do you think of it? Let's make it a little more personal. Who in your family, let's not even talk about your neighbors because that's scary. I won't talk about the people at Starbucks because maybe that's even scarier or people at work. Let's talk about the family that you know and grew up with. How many of them need the words of life? Are you that person to give them to them? I was struck by how often we have, and I say this about myself, how, how often I fail to even pray for those who need salvation whom I see all the time. I think it's a fair question for us to ask, do we fear God enough to be bold enough to obey His command to be witnesses? And where are the porches of today? I would say some of those porches are on our houses and people actually come there. And some of the porches maybe are elsewhere that we need to enter into. Do we fear God enough to enter them? Who are these people asking questions? Do we fear God enough to answer them? And I don't mean out of the love of being right. So back in the day, here's an old sentence, ready? Back in AOL days, you've got mail. Remember that? They had these things called chat rooms that would come up. Everyone thinks like really worst case scenario. No, don't think that. Get your mind out of the gutter, right? I would go on to apologetic chat rooms and pick fights with Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, whoever might disagree with me, not out of love, but out of pride. I would just go in there and go, hey, want to open the Bible? Let me double barrel shotgun you and show you how you're wrong, right? Oh, by the way, Jesus loves you. Like that, it was really bad. And I confess that it was wrong. Like, I love how Ravi Zacharias talks about their apologetic kind of purpose or attitude behind it. 
There's the questions being asked, then there's the questioner behind it. And do we fear God enough to love that questioner, love their soul, to give them the words of life and be a witness to them? That's not all they do. The high priests and the rulers are not pleased with what they're doing. That's why, obviously, they're arrested. And you see, when they arrest them, they make a very big spectacle of it. It says they put them in public prison. They come out, they take them by force, they put them in public prison. Why? To show everyone, you better be scared to do what they're doing. We're going to make an example of these guys to increase fear in everyone so that you won't even think about proclaiming Jesus publicly. The arrest is not illegal. The charges are certainly unfounded. But they're motivations for doing it are very clear. It says that they're filled with jealousy, right? They're not satisfied with what God's doing in their life, but they certainly see these guys and go, man, they've got a following. They've got respect. We want that. What you see is the same thing you see in Paul before he becomes the Apostle Paul. A man or a group of men who are living for themselves, opposing God in the name of God. So the council gathers, the Senate gets together, you have the entire leadership of Israel represented, and they go to get these 12 guys, and they're not there. And the guy comes back, he's like, uh, jail's locked, the guards are there, I don't know if they spooned out in a tunnel during the night, but there's no one in the jail. And then someone else runs in and says, they're in the temple again, teaching. And so they go to get him. But this time they don't take him by force. The captain and the guards come in. They're afraid they're going to get stoned by the people. And so they come in like, so would you guys um, be so kind as to come with us to this trial of people that killed Jesus? You want to come with and it's amazing to me they don't fight it. They don't go, <laughs> an angel let us out. Oh, they're going to stone you. Stone them, guys! Like, they're not, they're not afraid. They have no fear of these guys, so much so that they're willing to obey them because they know God is the one who's actually put them in authority. That's the level of fear they have for God. The respect they have for God. So standing before the council, they go, okay, guys, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Notice they can't even say the name of Jesus. We charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And so Peter replies, well, we have to obey God, not just men. It's the same thing he said actually earlier in Acts chapter 4, where he had under trial of probably many of the same guys, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you be the judge. He basically is saying, we got to obey God, and indirectly saying, you're disobeying God, and so we're going to disobey you. That's pretty bold. 
That's pretty bold to tell men who killed Jesus. And it reminded me of what um, Jesus told Peter in John chapter 6. When you go, man, what, what would inspire someone to say, I, I'm going to, I'm going to live my life for him. I'm not living to what you guys say. In the Gospel of John, there's lots of I am statements. Jesus says often, I am the way, the truth, and life. I'm the resurrection of life. I'm the door. I'm all these things. So one of the times he says, I am the bread of life. And he adds a little extra to it, which freaks people out. He says, and whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. People are like, what did he just say? Like, that sounds a little weird. And so, so many people are offended by what Jesus said in that moment. It says they no longer follow Jesus. And so Jesus turns to Peter, who heard the same thing. And he says, do you want to leave too? And Peter's response is incredible. He says, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. The apostles have some deep convictions about who God is and what He has taught. And they fear God enough to live for Him, even if it means their lives or their lifestyles are going to be lost. And that's only possible. Like You can only come to that place where you're like, I'm going to live this way. I don't care what anyone says. When you come to the conviction that God's ways are the ways of life, even if those ways are countercultural, even if they're counterintuitive, right? Even if the world says, that is not the way to do life, that is not the way to do this, or even your flesh goes, I, I don't think that's, I don't like this. You come to this conviction that God has the words of life and that His ways are right. If you read Proverbs, you find that there's a really interesting connection and you have to look for it, but once you see it, it's all over between fear and wisdom and humility. Fear, wisdom, and humility. One of the examples in Proverbs 15.33 says the fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom and humility comes before honor. Fear, wisdom, humility. They all go together and you can't take one out. If we do not live for God in following His ways and instead follow the ways of the world, we don't fear Him. Or said another way, we're actually too prideful to get off the throne of our lives because we actually believe our ways or their ways are the pathways to blessing. Fear, wisdom, humility, they go together. It's as the psalmist says, right? You have to come to this place. Why, why, would, I, why would I live for him? Because you, you understand his pathways are the way to life. Psalm 1. It's the first psalm. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree 
planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its seasons and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The man who follows the ways of the Lord that lives his life for the Lord is like a big, healthy, beautiful, fruitful, strong tree that when the seasons get bad, it's okay because it's got deep roots to withstand the famine or the storm or whatever. But the man who doesn't, the man who follows his own way, it says the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Wind doesn't impact a huge, healthy tree. But it blows away chaff like it's nothing. We must fear God enough to live for Him. Or said another way, I believe we must fear the kind of life that is going to come from not living for Him. That's scary. But the best part is this last part where Peter continues to speak and we see that he doesn't just fear God enough to be a witness and to obey Him doesn't just fear him enough to actually live for him like okay you can live this way or this way knowing that okay this way might be painful he fears him enough to proclaim him when given the opportunity i think the most striking thing in this passage is when he responds to these guys who are basically condemning him for preaching by preaching essentially they say hey we told you not to teach this and Peter says, well, I told you that I had to obey God, and then he proceeds to teach them what he was not supposed to teach. I see what you're doing, Peter. It's pretty clever, right? And what I find most powerful is that verses 31, I'm sorry, 30, 31, and 32, he seizes the opportunity to give the gospel. Three verses. We must be able to say the gospel in 60 seconds or less. One of the interview questions we have for membership, and it sounds really intense like interview, after someone goes to the membership class, we sit down and we just want to make sure they're a Christian. Make sure they understand what we believe, understand what the church is, and those types of things. And one of the questions is, okay, what's the gospel? Just tell me in 60 seconds or less, what's the gospel? When I was assessed as a church planner 12 plus years ago, I had to write down this big theological questionnaire, as many pages. The very first question, what's the gospel? Like, really? It's very elementary, isn't it? Panel interview, first question, what's the gospel? You guys are kind of hammering this over and over again, aren't you? And then I started to assess church planters. And I found that those guys who felt called to be pastors, felt called to be planters, many of them did not know the gospel. Some of them had answers that didn't even include the name of Jesus. You're like, how is that possible? It's possible! As believers, we must be able to speak the gospel in 60 seconds or less. If you can't explain the gospel in 60 seconds or less, we probably don't understand the gospel because the gospel is not advice or instruction. It's news. And almost any news report can be proclaimed in 60 seconds, even if you don't explain every detail 
of the implications of it. Elements of Peter's statement are really simple, right? Jesus died on the cross for sins. He rose from the dead. He is leader and Savior. He saves the repentance and forgiveness of sin. He sends His Holy Spirit. There you go. There are different ways to say this truth very simply. I want to help us as a church to seize those opportunities. Maybe very small windows, maybe larger windows. Maybe it's only a three-second window. There's a way to say the gospel in three seconds. Jesus is in my place. You want to do a four-second version? Jesus in my place in life and death. All right, and you go, what do you mean by Jesus? Oh, thank you for asking. Now let's have a conversation. What do you believe about Jesus? Jesus is in my place. There's a little bit of a longer version. You go on the website, it's like a 20-second version maybe. It says, what is the gospel? And you just click on it. And it says, the gospel is the good news that God became man in Jesus Christ. That He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died in our place. And three days later, He rose from the dead, proving that He was the Son of God, offering the gift of salvation to anyone who would repent and believe. Okay, that's 20 seconds. There's a little bit of a longer version. 60-second-ish. And I'll put it on the website. But I would encourage you to remember it. To know the news of the one whom you believe. Because the gospel, not your persuasive apologetic of Jesus, but the news of the gospel and what is the power of salvation. 60-second version is simple too. The gospel is the news of what God has done to accomplish salvation in history through Jesus Christ. In times past, a long time ago, there was a good God who created a good world full of good things to reflect His goodness. And an act of spiritual treason our first parents broke relationship with God and wrecked every other relationship there was. And they did this through willful disobedience to his word. In Adam's sin, death came to everyone. We are sinners by nature, but in truth, we have all willfully turned our back on God and we have become sinners by choice. Guilty, but trying very hard to find answers to the big questions of life. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I headed? And in truth, in that pursuit, apart from God, we are miserable. But we try to convince ourselves otherwise. We are enslaved to sin, we are worshiping idols, we are seeking our own glory, and we are never satisfied. We are guilty, indebted to God in a way that we are unwilling and unable to pay what is required to save ourselves, though we try really hard to do good and make sure that our ways are bad. But by grace, which means we didn't earn it and we did not deserve it, God reaches down to sinners and makes dead people alive. By grace, in love, he sends his son Jesus to become my substitute, living the life that I was supposed to live and dying the death that I deserve. 
And by grace, Jesus willingly dies on the cross for our sins, taking my guilt, taking my shame, paying the price that I could not, rising three days later in victory over sin, Satan, and death. And by faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, I am justified before God, deemed innocent before God, declared righteous because Jesus' goodness and righteousness and perfection has been given to me by faith. And by faith in Jesus Christ, I'm redeemed, and I'm forgiven, and I'm adopted, and I've been given God's Spirit, and He is blessing me, and He has guaranteed me an inheritance waiting for me in heaven. And by faith, through Jesus Christ alone, by His Spirit, I walk in the newness of life. And I don't obey to be accepted. I know I'm accepted, so I obey. And I live trusting that what Christ has done alone for me on the cross, despite what I have done or will ever do, is what saves me. What, the one-second version? God did it all. God did it all. And now, to bring it back to our church, I live as one restored in Christ to restore through Christ. I do that in word and I do that in deed. Living for Jesus until I return to Him or He returns to me. I'll take either one. That's the story of the gospel. A little more than 60 seconds, but not much. And that's when given the opportunity, what we need to tell people. Those are the words of life, they're powerful. And sometimes we're only going to get that three second little window, but sometimes we get much bigger one. Do we fear God enough to be in a position to witness Him? And do we fear God enough to, to live for Him in a way that is very different than the world? And do we fear God enough to suffer for Him that when we stand for Him, we probably will? That's what Peter's experience was, right? After he finishes, it's not like everyone's like, oh, you're right, Peter. Praise Jesus. No. It says they're enraged and they want to kill him. I'd say they're a little upset. They're stopped only by an old respected Pharisee who actually is the teacher of Paul the Apostle. And he basically says, look, guys, you better be careful what you do. Lots of false teachers come and go. He names a couple cult leaders. He's like, remember, remember Jethro? Remember Judas? Remember that guy? Like, he's gone. And he basically says, if it's of God, you are not going to be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God, so be careful. And so the apostles are freed. And there's just one little word in there. After being beaten... Now, it wasn't like this. Hey, guys, don't teach Jesus anymore. You learned your lesson, didn't you? These guys were beaten. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about being beaten 39 times, several times. At 40 times, they assumed you were dead. You've got to imagine these guys, probably backs and chests rip open, bruised, bloodied, they're not skipping out of the 
jail. They're probably stumbling out, but I would argue they've got very large smiles on their face. And it says that they rejoice. They rejoice because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Wow. Those are men who fear God. Do we fear God enough to view that kind of suffering as a cause for rejoicing? Not just like, I better rejoice. Like, yes. I was totally beat up for Jesus. That's the very thing we try to avoid. What is the key to fearing God like this? Like, how do you get there? And so, let me just twist it on in as I close. I would argue that the key to fearing God like this is to understand the fearsome nature of his love. John, who would have been there with Peter, who would have been beaten with Peter, wrote this in his first epistle in John, 1 John chapter 4. It says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So if you confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God incarnate, God abides in him and he in God, verse 16, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Famously, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, where God will judge the living and the dead, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Wait, 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 wait. We're talking about fear, and there's no fear in love. Like, it's a weird connection. Perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love, and dare I say, we fear because God loved us first. In order to rightly fear God, some of us need to see the Father as God. But I would argue that some of us also need to see the God as Father. It's one or the other. We usually struggle with one of the other, and he's both. And through the cross, right, the, the fear of God in this crazy way both removes my fear and renews it. I'm convinced we will fear God enough to obey Him and to live for Him and proclaim Him and even suffer for Him when we understand not only the cost of our salvation, but our God's willingness to pay it. He is both serious about sin and serious about salvation. And so, fear Him. He gave His only Son for you. And love Him. Because He gave His only Son for you.
That's the gospel. And it's beautiful, and it's fearsome, and it's loving, and it's why we're here. I pray we'll fear God more than we do now because we love him or understand his love he has for us. Let's pray.